Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Today's episode of Coaching Coordinator, we talk about teaching players in the classroom and the most efficient teaching techniques. We focus on quarterback mechanics and talk about the importance of networking in our profession. And joining me to talk about all those things is the passing game coordinator and quarterbacks coach at Monmouth University, TJ Demuzio. TJ, great to have you here on the podcast. Keith, really excited to be here. I appreciate you having me on. It's uh it's an honor to be on this podcast. It's a, you know, a great tool for a lot of college coaches and coaches all across the country. Coach, we always start with learning a little bit about your journey here and starting out with what was it that made you want to become a college football coach? Yeah, I mean, as a young guy growing up, I was, you know, played quarterback and, you know, thought that was going to happen for the rest of my life, be able to play in the NFL. And, um, Shortly after I started college, I realized that that might not be a uh, possibility for me. Um, so I ended up transferring. Uh, I was at Fairfield University. The program got shut down, unfortunately, and ended up transferring to Delaware. You know, obviously hoping to play, but really thinking, you know, it was best for me, best for my career in order to get in contact with some of those coaches there. Um, and, you know, was able to, my senior year, the end of my senior year, start coaching on the defensive side of the ball um, as a student assistant. And that was, you know, thankful to coach Dave Cohen, you know, had me on and, and ironically right after that year of my senior year of coaching, he was able to get the head coaching job at Hofstra. And from there, you know, hired me as the tight ends coach right out of graduation. So I was, you know, lucky in that aspect that I was there at the right time and right place and with the right guy. And, I think after that first year, it was just a no brainer. Uh, I never saw myself in a nine to five job sitting at a desk. I always wanted to be around football one way or another. And I think the fact that it was, um, everything sort of just fell into place for me. Uh, when I went to Austria, I was, I was graduating school. They, he had just taken a job. They had a restricted earnings position open and it was back on the opposite side of the ball. So I think everything just fell into place. And, and that first year in Hofstra, I mean, we weren't great, but I loved every single day of it. And uh, that's when I knew, you know, I knew this is what I wanted to do for the rest of my life. That's definitely some forethought 
there on um, making that move to Delaware to finish up your your college career with the thought of, of being somewhere that will help you uh, get to your next step that you know you, you are going to be a college coach and you go to a place that just has a ton of history and tradition starting with you know that really being the birthplace of the modern wing tee with Tubby Raymond um, what was it like just being part of that history and tradition yeah, it was, it was special. And, and I should mention as well that my, my father played at Delaware back in 1969, you know, was a starting quarterback there and um, was a great, you know, one of Tubby's favorite players. Because Tubby always used to tell my tell the story about when my father started his first game, I think it was, uh, crowd was packed and, and he came out. It was, uh, I think he threw like four interceptions in the first half. And he comes off to the sideline and Tubby said, you know, Tubby's trying to put his arm around him, telling, you know, not knowing what to say. And my dad looked at Tubby and said, don't worry, the fans will stop booing you soon. And uh, it was just, you know, Tubby always used to tell that story. I used to love it. And uh, so I grew up sort of learning the wing tee and understanding that. And my dad trying to install waggle passes with my high school team. And and uh, it's just a really special atmosphere. I was there, uh, played under Coach Casey Keeler, we were in my first year there where we won the national championship in 2003. So that was, you know, that was another special thing, special timing for me to be a part of that team. And then, uh, you know, when I came back to Delaware to coach there after, uh, after my stint at Hofstra, you know, Joe Flacco was the quarterback there, you know, the first year and we went to the national championship, uh, unfortunately lost to the Appalachian state team that beat Michigan that year. But Again, just another wild ride and, and, you know, truly blessed to be in that situation um, so early to be around so many national championships early in my career and uh, being around guys like Joe Flacco, Omar Cuff, and, you know, Delaware is a special, special place. Yeah, I think that's that's really neat. And, you know, just the influences you start to mention there, you, when you look at those early years of your career, you know, thinking back to some of those uh, I guess you'd say lessons or uh, things that happened to you, experiences, uh, the mentorship, all of those things, you know, uh, things that happened in that time. You know, what, what do you feel like you've, you learned from then that you really carry on today and is, is part of who you are as a coach? I can remember when I became a student coach um, on the defensive side of the ball at Delaware, you know, I, I was a typical college student. You know, I was, you know, maybe sleeping in and coming in and coming into the meetings. Like they didn't need me at the meetings, but I could have been there. So there wasn't a whole ton of, uh, I guess, strict time management on my part. And Dave Cohen pulled me aside and said, listen, if you want to do this and really be a part of this, you can, but you got to be, you got to be there, right? Be the best ability is availability. And I think that really stuck with me. Um, it was just being there and, and being around the office, even when, you know, you may not be needed right at that moment or in the next five minutes, or the next 20 minutes, but just being around and, and sort of learning to love the office. And, you know, that's what I started to do from, from that point on is that, you know, I was going to, I was going to, you know, eat and sleep in the office and just not because I had to, or because of work, but that's really what I found out that I wanted to be doing. You know, that's what I enjoyed doing most more than anything else. So that, that definitely, that lesson definitely stuck with me in terms of, you know, how much time you really have to be put to put into this thing to be good at it, you know, especially as a young coach, you know, you have to be the guy that's, that's staying late and, and not getting paid anything and, you know, doing all the grunt work. You have to be that because that's how you learn. You know, I, I learned through 
drawing thousands and thousands of cards, you know, and, and if you don't go through that stuff, I don't think you're as equipped to be success, successful as you move on, you know, so great lessons from, from coach Cohen, from coach Keeler, um, coach Kirk Scirocco when I was at Delaware, I, I, I played under him and then was able to coach under him as well. And, you know, he just taught me a ton of scheme about the game um, and really take like how he handled players uh, I, I thought was tremendous, you know, how you handle a talent like Joe Flacco. Cause yeah, it's, it's, it's easy to maybe easier to coach him on the field than other guys, but you know, just being able to balance um, guys that are that good and, and giving them, treating them differently than others, but not, you know, unequal or, you know what I mean? Like just not, not, the, not doing, not over coaching them. I guess is is the point I'm trying to get across. So for you, there's uh, a definite influence as well um, from your family, right? Educators, your mom, who's a teacher. Uh, You mentioned your dad coaching. Um, That kind of plays a part in how you approach the classroom part of this game, right? Uh, It's not just about on the field, really, at any level anymore. You you know, high schools are using meeting times, et cetera. Uh, there's some definite techniques and things you've leaned on to make sure your players are learning best. Talk to us about some of the methods and the things you believe on, believe in using in the classrooms parts of your coaching. Yeah, I think a lot of coaches love to be on the field and and not that I don't, I love the field, but I I love the classroom. I, I love preparing for the classroom. I love everything a part of it. I love coming in the morning, seeing the guys' faces, you know, me being awake because I've had too much coffee and them sort of sleepwalking in and, and me finding a way to wake them up day in, day out. Um, but that's that's my most favorite part of, of being a college football coach. And I think what I've learned, you know, through my parents, through different teachers I've had, through different books I've read, is that you only have a certain amount of time. You know, you have to be efficient in that meeting room. Yeah, you can have a two-hour meeting, but you really only are getting, you know, 20, 30 minutes of their focus uh, throughout that. So, you know, and I've read a couple of different books about, you know, the human mind only has like 17 minutes to pay attention. That's why those TED talks are 17 minutes and, and all those types of things. So, you know, I, I read those things. I learn them. I'm not um, any sort of doctorate. Or I don't have any sort of doctorate or anything like that, but I think it is interesting and important to understand, you know, how the human mind works. So, you know, if we have a, if we have a 50 minute meeting, which is rare, but let's say we did, you know, I'm not going to spend 50 minutes talking. You know, I'm going to spend the first five minutes installing the most important things that we need to do that day. Right. And then maybe we're watching film for the next 10 and then we're going to take a break. And then when we come back, I'm going to then install the next most important things that need to go, because that's when I have their, their best attention is those first five minutes and maybe those last five minutes before we take a break. And then when you come back for break, that's when you can sort of refocus them and, and get those most important things installed. You know, and, and there's a bunch of different teaching tools that I've picked up throughout the years, you know, making sure that kids are writing things down. Yeah, I got it, coach. I got it. Write it down, right? Re- repeat it out loud. When you repeat it out loud, you remember things. It's like anybody telling you a phone number, right? You're trying to remember that phone number. Say it out loud three times using different mnemonic devices, um, rhymes to help them remember things. I think all those things uh, have helped me as well as uh, picking up, uh, you know, making sure that when they leave the meeting, hey, 
what are three things that you guys are questioning still? What are two things that you uh, feel pretty good on? And, and tell me one thing that you enjoyed about the meeting today. You know, and just we call it three, two, one at the end of the meeting. Just some of those things that, you know, have helped me become a better teacher um, so those guys can learn the game better. And, you know, the, as this a long-winded answer, but I, I think the other important thing too is that in when you're in the meeting room is that you do test them with some speed. You know, you, yes, I can ask you, hey, what do you do versus this coverage and have them give an answer and have them 30 seconds to give an answer. This is the best play versus cover two, right? But can he do it in 10 seconds? Can he set the protection? Can he, you know, hand signal the route? And can he know what he's doing all within 10 seconds. So we spend a lot of time not only just doing tests, but speed tests. Give him a signal, give me an answer, and go. Uh, give him a signal, give me an answer, next play. All those types of things. And that's why you know, I love the meeting room because that's where I think you can get so many reps done and in a controlled space. Yeah, I love a lot of those things you brought up are great. And starting with the idea at the beginning of – you know, there being a certain amount of time. And uh, I mentioned to you before we got going, we were talking about this topic that I was reading uh, a book called Limitless by a guy by the name of Jim Quick. It's K-W-I-K. And there's a part where he's talking exactly about what you just mentioned. Um, and it's kind of based on part of it, two, two things. The forgetting curve, which means retention is going to decrease that longer that that, that session goes on. You won't remember everything in there, the longer the session is. So the idea of having shorter sessions, as you said, 17 minutes uh, in the book, he mentions, you know, using the Pomodoro technique, which is 25 minutes of, of learning or activity, five minute break, you let the brain rest. And then what it does, like you said, the beginning is where you place the most important things. And it's actually um, uh, the beginning and at the end. So primacy or the opening in recency the closing that you're going to remember things at the beginning of a learning session or study session and things at the end better than you will in the middle. So by shortening that time, and let's say you do have, you know, an hour and a half in the classroom, you're smart to break it up because you create more of those cycles where you have that opening and that closing and you're able to get better retention. And, you know, just, I think some of the science behind that is, is really interesting. I'm glad you brought that up. Yeah, no doubt. And I think um, every coach has, you know, certain things that they sort of gravitate to in terms of make them a better coach, you know, whether it's recruiting, understanding the roadmaps to get different schools or, you know, uh, understanding which, which are the best food stops to uh, stop at in certain areas or, or whatever it may be things that you, that you really just enjoy outside of, outside of it being your job. And for me, I really enjoy understanding how the human brain works and, and learning about those. And again, I am, I can't use any technical terms. I read a lot of them, but I have no idea what they mean. But I, I enjoy learning things like the 17-minute rule, uh, reading a book like Moonwalking with Einstein by uh, Josh Fuller, I think, you know, and that just how, like, you can get a list of things, of uh, 12 things and different techniques of how you can remember, remember those those 12 things. And I won't go through it all now, but when you when you read about those things and, and you're like, wow, how did I not learn that throughout school? It, it's just amazing to me um, sometimes how the human brain can work and learning the techniques that we can help our players use to become better and, and more efficient with their time.
no doubt that's that's something that's recently gotten my attention. I've been spending a lot of time reading on as well. Uh, the you know as we move this out onto the field, you know one of the things you mentioned as far as the work you like to do with quarterbacks in in the mechanics isn't necessarily messing around with the arm or arm angles, uh, especially by the time they get to you, uh, that you like focusing on some different things to help them improve as a quarterback uh, outside of messing with their arm. Talk to us about what you feel the most important things are in in getting these guys uh, to be able to perform at the best level throwing the football. Yeah, absolutely. I, I hope that we are recruiting a, a – we are doing a good enough job recruiting that I don't have to mess a ton with a kid's motion once he gets here. You know, that's sort of why I recruit him. I want to know that he can make different arm angle throws and that he can get the ball out fast. But once I get him, what I focus mostly on is that he's on balance when he throws. Understanding that we can't always be on balance, but when we can be on balance and when we can throw a – uh, three-step drop, you know, quick game, whatever. We want to make sure that we're as consistent as possible when we can do that. Um, so, you know, I learned a lot of techniques that I know from a guy named Mario Verdusco, who's out in Nebraska, I think quarterback's coach. He had trained me when I was coming out of high school, and I was a much better listener than I was a doer. Uh, but I remember a lot of things that he said in terms of the body being on balance when it throws and being able to hold your weight back till that specific time for your hips to turn and open. You know, everybody can see nowadays, you know, Dak Prescott and Jameis Winston doing those weird hip things, but you know, that's a lot of what we work on. And, and that's a lot of what we spend time on is transferring the weight from your back foot to your front foot and being able to throw on downs. And obviously that's, that's in a perfect world. You know, you're getting, a, getting a, a drop back. There's nobody in your face and you're able to throw on balance. And so that's what we prepare for trying to be accurate when we can be there and then, you know, the rest of it is, you know, learning to throw off balance, learning to do that. But that's really the starting point for me uh, is teaching them to throw with the lower half of their body so that they can be as accurate and as consistent as possible. What are a couple of drills you really like in terms of being able to utilize that to, to teach your quarterbacks? Uh, so there's a couple of things, and a lot of them are warm-up drills for us now, uh, standing with you know, if I'm a righty, staying with my right foot forward, twisting and throwing, um, having the two feet in cement, twisting and throwing, uh, just as simple as keeping your straight, your feet forward, having a line in between them, uh, like a line splitting the crotch of the player, and then just having them take one step back into their uh, load step, as we call it, and then one step forward into their final throw. And then when they finish, their feet should be where – at the exact same point where they started. Again, it's a little tough to describe over a podcast, but hopefully that makes sense in that you're putting your weight back and you're putting your weight forward. And at the end of the day, your feet are back exactly where they started, um, parallel with that line that was splitting their crotch. And that shows, hey, I finished on bounds. You know, we always try to work on a line because the line tells us, hey, are we overstriding? Are we understriding? You know, and then I can work on the, the weight balance from there. Um, the other one that I like uh, that's a little bit different that we came up with, we call a wow, wow, West drill is uh, that we'll have, you know, two quarterbacks walking away, sort of walking away from each other as if they're in a duel. Um, and as they continue to walk away, they have two receivers behind their backs that are sort of running around and moving and are covered by other guys. 
And then when I clap, what they have to do is flip around as fast as possible and set their feet and throw the ball to, uh, to the open guy. And if he's covered, then they tuck and run. But I think that's a good sort of reaction drill of like, hey, my guy came open, I'm ready to throw it, I'm on balance. Or my guy isn't open, I'm on balance, I'm ready to take off. And I think it's just a good, you know, like we talked about in those speed tests in the classroom, yeah, you can walk through it and make sure a kid's on balance doing it slowly, but this forces him to do it fast and try to get the ball out of his hands as fast as possible. Plus, I like the name of the Wild Wild West drill. <laughs> yeah, it's always good to have a cool name for your drill. Our running back coach has the best names. He's got uh, SSS, the Barry Sanders drill. He's, he's the name king. <laughs> coach, moving along, you know, we, we said we were going to talk a little bit about networking. It's such an important part of our profession, really at any level today. Um, and I'm finding, you know, with what's happened over the last almost year now, uh, the opportunities seem to be moving outside your normal region where we seem to be limited by travel in, in jobs um, because jobs are now being, you know, interviewed for and, and those things are being conducted virtually as well, that people are kind of expanding their search. So network becomes very important. You know, from, from your viewpoint, what are some of the things that you focused on to build your network? Unfortunately, I think part of it is like you, you have to move around and you have to work with guys um, when you're young. You, ha you have to work on different staffs because, yeah, you can go to the convention and meet all these guys, but does that mean somebody's going to recommend you for a job? They might, but how much weight does it carry if, if they've never really worked for you? So I think that's part of it. You know, I was lucky enough to, on that Hofstra staff, to work with a number of guys, and it was my first job. So you know, but, but on that Hofstra staff alone, there was, you know, Mike Elko, who's the defense coordinator at Texas A&M. I learned a lot from him. He's, you know, he's a mentor of mine and, you know, I try to stay in touch with him, but it's Sean Spencer, who's a D-line coach of the New York Giants. Um, Lyle Hemphill, defensive coordinator for Wake Forest, you know, and, and the list goes on. I'm, I'm sure I'm forgetting John Perry, you know, who's with the Houston Texans. So that staff, but then, you know, then going to Delaware staff and getting to work with the likes of, you know, Kirk Shiraka, Ben Albert, um, Brian Ginn, you know, a number of guys. So unfortunately, I think that's part of the young coach's best ability is to have to move around a little bit so that you can expand your network because just meeting guys at camps and at uh, network functions, I don't think you can get a full gra grasp and a great recommendation from those guys. It's, it's when you work with people and people see your work ethic and, and go from there and then can make the decisions from there. So I think that's you know, uh, part of being a young coach and coming up is that, you know, sometimes you might have to bounce around a little bit. You know, as, as you move forward, you mentioned a lot of great names, uh, quite a few of those guys actually presenting with you this past weekend at Lawrence first and goal. Um, what do you do to maintain that network? Right. Cause they go their separate directions. You go your different directions. How intentional are you about making sure you stay connected with those guys? Yeah, and, and I'll say this, Keith, I don't think I'm good at it. I, I should I should be a lot better than I am. Um, I would tell young guys to, to do a better job than I would, but, you know, I will send text messages, you know, I will do some of that. You know, I, I used to write letters. I should get back into that. I, I really wish that's something I, uh, maybe I will try to do going forward is, you know, just stay more in touch and, 
you know, to reach out, even if it's just little things saying, Hey, you know, I saw you guys ran this versus uh, Texas the other week. What'd you think of that? Just, just some way to stay in touch and to stay on their mind. Um, I've had guys that, that we've, we've coached that were younger guys that were quality control coaches. And honestly, I learned a lot from them um, going through and, and staying in touch with how they've stayed in touch with me. So I, I've learned a lot through those guys, even through like following them just on social media and, and liking and, and commenting and all that stuff like that can help build your network. But more importantly, it just keeps you on the minds of certain people. So that's the biggest thing. And, and again, I think that's something I can, I can do a much better job of than I have. We mentioned Lawrence first in goal, and I was able to, I was able to catch a glimpse actually of quite a few of the talks. I think I was in yours for maybe five or ten minutes, and because I just loved the topic QB friendly schemes, and that's uh, a course now on Coach Tube. For those who didn't attend the clinic, uh, you're able to get it there. But uh, again, a very interesting topic, and uh, for our listeners, I guess if you could give kind of a uh, an overview of some of the things you talked about in your clinic talk. Absolutely. Uh, just because, and, and this, this past year, we were lucky enough to have a quarterback that was extremely smart. He was a big South player of the year. He was a three-year starter. Um, Kenji Bahar, just a tremendous kid and, and great learner of the game would spend time watching film, you know, knew a ton. And I think sometimes when you get a guy like that, you tend to, Oh, because he's so smart, there's, there's an opportunity to try to make things more difficult on him or put more things on his plate. And I think part of my talk was about just because you have a guy like that doesn't mean you have to put more on his plate. There's still a lot of good, very good schemes out there. And, and what I talked a lot about was our this or that schemes. You know, and essentially what you're coming up is you're saying, hey, either I have this, this part of this play open, and if not, I have that part of this play. So, for example, you're coming out, you're either going to have the one-on-one throw, or if you don't have that, then you're going to have the bubble. Or in a screen situation, you're going to have this throw before the screen, this quick game throw to the screen, or then you're going to have the screen part, which is the that part. So I talked a lot about the the, the this or that scheme in our offense. And, um, you know, just, just touching a little bit on the easier you can make it on the quarterback, the better. Because that's when he's free to make plays, when he's – not thinking when he's able to react and just sort of, just sort of be the quarterback that he is out there. When you give him nine thousand things to think about, hey, we're motioning this and then we're shifting and trading, and then you got to call the front. It's just too much. It's just too much. And I did a little exercise in the beginning on quarterback neuroplasticity and and all the things that they possibly could have on their plate pre-snap, and it's just a lot. You know, I don't care how smart you are. So uh, a lot of the talk was just about. Make it as easy as possible on your quarterback when you can. In terms of, you know, especially your work and contributions to the game plans as far as the passing game goes, uh, is there a magic number for you on on how many concepts or how many calls you're going to carry into a game uh, in terms of of passing plays? Uh, No, there's no real magic number. Uh, Coach Gallo, uh, our offense coordinator and tight ends coach who played here and, and now has been here over I think 16 years now does a just phenomenal job balancing out our ideas, you know, between coach Gabriel, coach Callahan, coach Dorsett, myself, you know, we will come up with, Hey, X amount of ideas for first intent and second down 
and then we'll have our third down plays. And then what we do is he does a great job of coming back. Hey, do we really want this? Do we really like this? And, and we trim it down from there. So we don't have a number. Uh, we know more so each week, hey, we can only do three new things this week, or we can only do four new, four new uh, different shifts or trades out, out of, with this play this week. You know, so uh, there's no magic number. It's just more of a feel. And I think Coach Gallo does a tremendous job of, of having that feel of the balance between the coaches wanting to do everything and, and what our players can handle. Coach, you shared some great stuff with us here today. When you look at all you do as a coach, uh, you've mentioned on the field stuff, you mentioned off the field stuff, you mentioned networking, et cetera. Yeah, what's the one thing you do as a coach that you really feel gives your guys the winning edge? I, I'd have to go back to the classroom, Keith. I think what we get done in the classroom in, in that little amount of time uh, between the speed tests and challenging, challenging them, excuse me, challenging them to get as many reps, mental reps as possible in that room is probably what gives them the edge. You know, we're going to have a situation this spring coming up where we're going to have a new quarterback. So we've been trying to uh, have three guys, you know, three to four guys compete for this job. And that's been hard because there's not as many, there's not enough reps to go around. So I think the ability to really challenge them in the classroom to get those mental reps is one of the best things that we do here um, so that we can feel all three of those guys are able to, to, you know, go out and be ready to compete for this job and, and play at any time, especially in a year like this where you may need three guys to play, you know? So uh, I think that's where we get our edges in the classroom. Coach, for our listeners out there, if they have a guy, what are your recruiting areas? I recruit Eastern Pennsylvania, um, so Philadelphia, Bucks County, Del Delaware County, up to Northampton. I have Western New Jersey, Mercer County, and Hunterdon, and I have the state of Delaware. And the best way to connect with you? Best way to connect with me is uh, through Twitter, at Coach TJD. Coach, I really appreciate your time. appreciate what all of you guys did, uh, including yourself, for Lawrence First and Gold, just a a tremendous effort by everybody involved and um, you know, best of luck to you and Monmouth as you guys head into uh, a spring of 21 season. Thanks Keith. I really appreciate you having me on. This is a great podcast, a great tool for all the coaches across the country. And, you know, just thank you for everything you're doing for the game. Thank you again for listening to the coaching coordinator podcast. Please, if you are enjoying the podcast, head over to iTunes or Spotify and click five-star for a rate. If you have a minute, write a review. It really helps the podcast. Check out our new home for the Coaching Coordinator Podcast. That's at coachandcoordinator.com. And follow me on Twitter at Coach K. Grabowski.